Hi, and welcome to Preoccupied. Today we're going to be going through part two of our interview with Miss Andrea Broadwater, a therapist in independent practice in the Ann Arbor area. Yeah, we just got so much delicious information out of her, like we could not... I feel kind of bad, actually. We went, we went well into her, her time, but um, she just had so much insight. We just kept coming up with questions, so we're so excited to share that conversation with you guys. Yeah, definitely our longest and most thorough interview to date. So yeah. this one was just too good to cram into one episode. Yes, and she's also um, our first therapist um, that we're talking to about therapy anyway. Yeah, so that led to a lot of new questions about topics that hadn't really come up before. Yeah, um, something that we take into consideration when we are talking to therapists is there's a bit of a difference in the lingo depending on where a therapist might work or how they might be theoretically inclined. Yeah, like dating back to the days of Freud, you have psychologists talking about their patients and, you know, someone who comes to therapy is the patient. They're there to be treated by the psychoanalyst or nowadays maybe the psychiatrist or otherwise biologically oriented psychologist who is kind of sitting in a place of authority and saying, you know, okay, here, let's talk about what's going on with you and see what we can do about it. Right. Here's what I prescribe to make you better. Exactly. (laughs) And not prescribe in a medication sense necessarily, but here's our treatment plan for this kind of disorder. And it is, um, when you think of the I mean, even in Spanish, (laughs) hear me out, stay with me. Um, You have, uh, you're learning about usted and uh, when to use formal language when we were in our health unit, you know, doctor is a formal relationship. Like you would talk to one of your elders or a teacher, your doctor is up on that level. And I think that that is pretty prominent in our culture as well. The authority of the doctor is, um, the authority of the doctor is present. Yeah, kind of puts them, like, in, in that relationship, there's definitely, like, an imbalance. Of power. Yeah, not to call that, it's, I don't know, to call it an imbalance of power may make it sound like a bad thing when maybe it isn't necessarily. Right, because the doctor like, knows his or her shit, you know? Exactly. Uh, yeah. Like, if I go to my doctor and I say, you know, I'm smoking two packs a day, but I ain't got cancer, so I am fine. Yeah, <laughs> how you know? dare you tell yeah. me how to take care of myself, yeah. Exactly. That's a place where a power imbalance is good. Yeah. Because <laughs> sometimes the patient doesn't always know what they're talking about. Yeah. Right. And I mean, even in the past, talking about um, the term patient, a lot of psychological procedures or psychiatric procedures were very medical like lobotomies and um yeah. the beginning of ect things Even like that into the modern day with tms um medication and deep brain stimulation and yeah all these other things that um doctors have come up with to help people psychological problems a lot of that is when you'll be hearing the term patient used right because at first it was performed by doctors Mm-hmm. Makes sense. As we get to into the 1960s, 1970s, uh, social psychology, humanistic psychology, um, cognitive and cognitive behavioral theory all kind of come to the forefront of current research. We witness a little bit of maybe a cultural shift, yeah. I don't want to call it. Um, Within psychology. Yeah. 
and within the way that we view the dynamic between therapists and their uh, patients or clients, whatever you yeah, personally exactly. prefer. <laughs> exactly. Coming from uh, Carl Rogers and his book, The uh, Client-Centered Therapy. Yes, yes. Um, so the connotation of each of the words, and as you're listening, you might kind of have different mental images of what a client looks like versus a patient, you know? Um, so when I picture a patient, like we talked about before, there's that unspoken, um, kinda maybe a bit of a distance or like a... The person is seeking out the therapist to for their expertise in the problem that the person needs fixed, right? Right. And then as a client, it kind of comes with the connotation more of, like, you're coming to this therapist to pay for a service and you expect respect in return. So with therapists who prefer the term patient, a lot of times the relationship looks more like respect and authority going one way from the patient to the therapist. And then the therapist in turn caring for and taking care of their client. Whereas in a therapist-client relationship, the respect and authority goes both ways while the therapist is still caring for the needs and better word than needs objectives <laughs> is seeing to is helping facilitate the objectives well i feel like with client it sounds a little bit more like like when i was in therapy you know they're like so maddie what goals do you want to set for yourself rather than having those set for me which i think kind of comes back to like the severity of the person's problem yeah like, if the sufferer is in a place where they, they can't can responsibly... Yeah. Well, like, if the sufferer is in a place where they can responsibly set their own goals, then that's great. Mm -hmm. If they're in a place where they can't responsibly set their own goals, then maybe a therapist-client relationship where the client has a lot of power isn't the best fit for that mm -hmm. sufferer. So it comes down a lot to the personality and training of the therapist and maybe the condition of the sufferer. Yeah. I feel like, too, what I've noticed um, in talking to different people is that, like, the setting as well um, sometimes plays a role in their preference. Um, so, for example, talking to therapists who work, like, inpatient in hospitals, you know, say, you know, it's inpatient therapy, um, just because it's a more, you know, more medical setting. Um, and they're the doctor-patient relationship. It is a more formal relationship in that setting. Meanwhile, if you're... Uh, in therapy with somebody in your living room or your, you know, your home office, that might be a more intimate relationship rather than like a doctor-patient, client, and, or like therapist-patient and client-therapist are, it's a little bit more on an equal playing field. While the difference in terminology may seem inconsequential, it can often lay the groundwork for the kind of relationship that the therapist has with the person they have in treatment. So a key part of this rapport building of the relationship between the therapist and the person being treated is something called transference. Yeah, and transference comes from early psychoanalytic thought and refers to a phenomenon that was observed where 
what the psychoanalyst thought was maybe feelings that a patient had for their parent was then being displaced onto the therapist. Yeah. So, like, if I were to go into a therapist's office and she was, like, a tall woman with laugh lines and a warm demeanor, I'd be like, oh my gosh, she reminds me just of my mom. I need her approval. Or like, you know, or like, oh, I really feel like I can talk to her might be the other side of that. Yeah. Or then it may even be more subconscious than that. So like, I may be going to a therapist and I just feel like kind of angry towards the guy for... I don't know, how he's doing things, how he set up the room, whatever. And he sees that and he's like, so, you're angry towards your father. Why? (laughs) And that's kind of the psychoanalytic approach to that. Yeah. But then the approach to transference has changed a lot since Freud. And now it's kind of used to refer to any kind of feelings that may come up during therapy. Yeah, and I feel like just because it is such um, something that's discussed is because therapy is often such a safe place that those subconscious feelings might are might be more likely to make an appearance with your therapist than with other people in your life. Yeah. Another, Especially if they're like a blank slate, you know, that you can just project yeah, <laughs> all of your issues onto. Exactly, yeah. Or a lot of people um, in therapy who've had, like, relationship issues may come into therapy and be like, oh, there's someone who cares about me. They must, like care about me, yeah. care about me. And then the therapist develops or, no, <laughs> the client develops feelings for the therapist. Yeah. And well there are some Netflix shows about that. We would not recommend it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's how not to do boundaries in therapy. Yeah. Um now my other little slip there would be countertransference. Yeah, so countertransference, um if you think about what we just said transference is and that is the client's feelings onto the therapist, then counter-transference would be the therapist's response to the client. So the feelings that the client or the person being treated brings out of the therapist. Um, So maybe if um, the person being treated might rub the therapist kind of the wrong way, you can't really nail down why, or maybe the client reminds the therapist of like their daughter subconsciously brings out a more maternal warmth that kind of thing yeah or it may even be less subconscious like that uh for example a professor of ours was once talking about a client she had who was an um uh he was a zealous member of the clan and that clan (laughs) yes the ku klux klan and she the feelings that he stirred up in her, she was just not willing to treat the guy. Yeah. And that's sometimes how that goes. If the counter-transference, you know, the emotions brought up by the associations with things the client is presenting become too great and the therapist realizes, like, I can't effectively treat this person. Yeah. Then that may be what happens. Yeah, it would get in the way of the therapeutic relationship and of the progress that you could make together if you're not on the same wavelength, you know? And I feel like that's another thing that we will talk about in our interview later, I feel, is that um, that self-awareness that you have to have of the feelings that a client brings out in you as well as so that you can be aware of that and not subconsciously yourself affect their treatment. Yeah, and that's something that Miss Broadwater brings up too is uh, the importance of consulting 
and being able to talk with other therapists as a therapist about what's going on with your clients yes or patients in case something maybe needs to change or even if you need to refer out yeah if you feel like you can't effectively treat a given client yeah um so talking about transfers is this important uh, thing to be aware of when forming relationships between therapists and the people that they are treating um and it's something that we've been talking about since freud and we're still talking about now as the wave of the future is upon us and we think about how the person being treated in therapist relationship might change as more technology is introduced and that classic in-person dynamic might look different yeah although before we move on i want to say one more thing about transference okay is that Countertransference is often very useful to the therapist as a way to figure out what's going on with the client. It's yeah. like maybe not quite as a definitive diagnostic tool, but as a way to poke around. Yeah. Like a therapist may be talking to a client and get the idea of, well, I'm kind of getting like, I don't know, like an unsettled feeling in the yeah. pit of my stomach. So they might ask the client, like, I'm kind of getting an kind of an anxious, unsettled feeling from you. Yeah. You know, is, is there something maybe going on that you want to talk about? Yeah. And that countertransference can be a really useful way of starting a discussion with a client who may be otherwise unresponsive because it kind of shows that you, the therapist, are attentive to their emotions and are, like, able to be empathetic with them. Yeah. So in a way it can be um, really instrumental or or sometimes detrimental in the treatment, but either way, it's an integral part of the relationship. And it's something that a lot of conversation lately has been about what happens when this client and therapist relationship is taken outside of the context of four walls in an office and maybe onto a Skype call, uh, text messages, things like teletherapy uh, combines. Yep. And that's something that we're going to be talking about a lot in part two of our interview with Miss Andrea Broadwater. That's right. Teletherapy is something that I'm sure that <laughs> if you're like me and you Google therapists all day, for interview purposes, but you know, <laughs> yeah. you get a lot of ads for like, talk to someone online right now, certified specialists, you know, and um, it's a topic of a lot of discussion in the site community right now with... Um, the wave of technology with people leading busier and busier lives of, okay, is this something that is, you know, oh, we should adopt to our times versus, oh, the integrity of the therapeutic process, you know? And like, personally, thinking about it, like, for my stance, like, I'm not, I do agree that the more people, like, it's much better to seek some kind of therapy than not at all, you know? But then this other part of me that's very like, likes to romanticize, you know? And like, likes to, um, like, oh, it's all about connection, man. You know, um, thinking about the sanctity, if that makes sense, of having those like four walls, having a physical space yeah. to like unravel your your brain in what do you think yeah i can definitely see how that physical presence can be effective especially as we're talking about transference and countertransference 
where maybe that connection doesn't occur so well over a video window that's been reduced to pixels and a highly compressed audio signal mm-hmm. that doesn't really sound all like them, yeah. a person's voice, you know? Although, on the other hand, as a resident of rural Michigan, mm-hmm. where it's 15 minutes to the nearest grocery store, let alone to the nearest therapist, mm-hmm. you're looking at 45 minutes an hour to anyone decent, I can definitely appreciate the value of therapy being accessible and to people who can't otherwise access it without a half-day trip to the therapist. Exactly, and I feel like maybe the more the demand for mental health counseling like rises and it does become less stigmatized like that maybe that with that demand increase then there's going to be need to be more of that accessibility cost wise um location wise so i feel like even if it and i do wonder about the vulnerability aspect of being in front of somebody in real life versus on a computer screen I wonder if that would make somebody less inhibited, having somebody just like on a screen to talk to, or because um, they feel less vulnerable maybe, or if like being, you know, being across from somebody could be intimidating and maybe cause somebody not to open up as much, would, I feel would be another dimension to look at. Yeah. I think that too depends on like both the therapist and the person. Yeah. And then also like with the therapist's approach to therapy. Like, um, I've experienced teletherapy myself, mm-hmm. again, being in rural Michigan. <laughs> and um, with a more client-centered therapist who's willing to work on equal terms with their client, I think that takes a lot better to the teletherapy setting. Because then you don't have, say, the therapist sitting in their office chair while they ask you to lie down on the psychoanalytic yeah. couch. Yeah, <laughs> lie down very vulnerably with all your internal organs splayed out. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> Not a very natural response to meeting a stranger who wants to hear about your whole life, you know? Totally. And I think that helps, too, to break down a lot of stigma around therapy. Yeah. Is to be, to be able to place it in an online setting as opposed to... You make know, an appointment, and then you go, yeah. and your insurance, and your... Yeah, you go sit in the waiting room with the calming Muzak and <laughs> They magazines. have, like, a back door so that you don't have to be seen as you go to the parking lot some places have. Yeah, a lot of times therapist's office can be unsettling in and of themselves, and... In the same way that, like, going to the dentist, maybe you have yeah. that connotation of, like, ooh, it's really cold in here, like, yeah. you know? like, for those people, teletherapy may serve them very well. right. And maybe if you're somebody who maybe would thrive in a more formal setting like that, like, or you might like something that's a little bit more, that feels more structured because there's a literal structure around you. Yeah. I wonder if, um, I wonder how personality would uh, correlate mm-hmm. with effectiveness of teletherapy versus in-person therapy. Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting thought. Yeah. I'm sure somebody wrote it though. Yeah. Do a Google Scholarship yeah. search. Yeah, we can find that. If we do, we'll put it in the show notes. If we don't, then we didn't. That means go out and do the study yourself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Unless we get to it first. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, check it out. Uh, Pax and Summers at Al. Yeah. <laughs> um, I appreciate that you put my name first. <laughs> oh, of course. Um, um, although, when it comes to an in-person therapy setting, I can definitely see how people may prefer 
to go to their therapist and feel like they can confide confide in them when the therapist is nearby and present and there. Right. No CIA agents tapping your webcam. You have those four, and I talk about this with Miss Broadwater, those four physical walls yeah. around you. And I feel like being able to say this is a safe space. Your sister isn't going to overhear you talking on the phone or whatever. Exactly. Two is yeah. another factor for sure. Yeah, like this couch lying down looking up at this skylight in this third floor office <laughs> is somewhere where you can confide in the Let therapist. your guard down, yeah. We're looking at you, Dr. Porcerelli. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stay tuned. <laughs> mm-hmm. Stay tuned for our upcoming episode with Dr. Porcerelli in which we talk to him in his third floor skylight office next to his psychoanalytic Oh, couch. yeah. Lots of nice <laughs> ambient hospital uh, ambulance noises and garbage trucks, very, you know, the bustling city. <laughs> yeah, the bu- bustling city of Birmingham, Michigan. Yes. Yeah. But we talk more yeah. about all of the different pros and cons, and we actually get to learn a lot more about teletherapy while we're talking with Andrea Broadwater and I hope we get to talk to more people in the future about it and get more perspectives and educate ourselves and in turn educate you all. Uh, So with no further ado, here is part two of our interview with Miss Andrea Broadwater. come in and maybe they seem a little bit more guarded, a little bit more hesitant um, to talking about themselves or being treated. Um, How do you, how do you foster rapport with clients in your first couple of sessions? Um, so usually within an intake, I talk a little bit about how I view therapy and my role, um, and sort of my own personal goal for, you know, my client's journey and, um, and one of the things that I say is that I really, really just want this space to be a sanctuary. Mm -hmm. I want there to be at least one room that you can enter and know that there is absolutely no judgment and that you can just be yourself. And this is just a foundation for self-discovery. There's no right and wrong here. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, I also use self-disclosure, you know, when it's relevant because I think that people really need to know a little bit about your own story in order to, to feel that trust. Um, and honestly, I think that as people start to open up and they get feedback or validation um, of their experience, I think it can be a lot easier for them to trust that they're in a space where they can do that yeah you know in that same vein then I guess when you're getting to know somebody probably more intimately than a lot of people in their life a lot of their lives know them how do you establish those boundaries to avoid you know do you find yourself experiencing depersonalization uh how do you combat that when establishing boundaries um I mean from my from my side of things, um, I don't know that it's always been this easy, but I think for me, I very much am wearing my therapist hat mm-hmm. in my room. This is my job. 
Yeah, right? it's a very professional. Yes. And I wouldn't, I mean, I would, I would also assume, as you guys have talked with me, I am not very formal <laughs> of, your, of a person. Um, but yes, professional to the point of, I'm a very ethical person, I'm a very professional person in that the whole goal of this hour with this person is to make sure that they feel heard and seen. Um, and I'm going to do everything that I can to ensure that. And then I think if boundary issues come up as far as, um, you know, if I feel something has been crossed or if I feel like, you know, whether from my side or from, from the, the client side, if something, if something feels uneasy, I want to bring that up in the conversation. Mm-hmm. I want to check in with them and say, how are you feeling about this? This is how I'm feeling about this. I don't know if this is, if we're sharing this or what's going on here. So I think it's really important to not be afraid to talk about things that are really, can be really uncomfortable. Yeah. Having um, those hard conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause ultimately that is it, the therapeutic relationship grows as your client grows. And so you have to be able to model those type of conversations within this safe space that this client may have never had outside of that space, right? Um, so you're hoping that by doing modeling that within that, that contained safe sp- space that you've created, that they can then go out and talk to their you know personal relationships in you know more beneficial manner because of it. Something else I wonder about um, as I consider going into therapy and things like that, and even um, considering private practice myself, is thinking about ways that, I guess something that I feel concerned about is like, okay, like I have, I would have this training, I could really help people, but how can we get that help to people who really need it, who might be able to not afford it or even know that they need it. So what are some ways that somebody who is a therapist can help underprivileged populations um, in a field that is often looked at, that could be looked at as a a luxury, Mm -hmm. really? I think connecting with organizations that exist for that primary reason. So um, I am set up with, um, I don't know what you, different nonprofits that help connect um, marginalized or low-income communities with the right therapist. Um, I think also having space to have uh, sliding scale clients is also, if you're going to go into private practice, that's sort of a given. You have to decide how many can I afford because you have to make a living, but you also want to be able to provide this service. Um, and so I think it it's networking for yourself in, in knowing in your community what exists so that I can connect with these um, clients who deserve to have good care and you know you shouldn't have to be able to afford you know whatever over a hundred dollars an hour in order to to obtain that yeah um, I think it's hard because a lot of community mental health not that there there's a bad motive or they're not malicious at all but I do think that like all clinicians you sort of you sort of get to know what your limits are how long can I work in this sort of industry that is um, underfunded and I'm you know overwhelmed with the amount of clients Um, community mental health that I've worked in I've had 60 clients on my caseload at one time and you can't see 60 clients in one week (laughs) and um 
And so those people definitely, you know, who maybe are on Medicare and, you know, can't afford to not go to a community mental health agency, you know, those, those private practice providers then have to be able to, you know, reach out in their communities, do things in the community, you know, whether that's through like, um, I don't actually know if Psychology Today has that, but I do Being Seen, which is the collective that helps um, helps connect you with people who need to have, um, need to be able to be connected with somebody who can give them good care and not be expected to give somebody, you know, 30% of their income. Yeah, yeah. So if you, if giving back is something that's important to you, there's a lot of ways to do that. Yeah, and I think there's more every day. Um, I was just invited to apply for um, a telemental health um, organization that is going to be starting in the summer um, of this year. And that's specific to uh, marginalized communities and um, people of color. And I think that um, it's something where you need somebody that really sort of understands right how to how to work with specialized populations um so it's uh especially i think though i think populations that really have had a poor experience with mental health providers at some point yeah okay so then um telemental health that's something we've not heard very much at all yeah the only thing i've heard about it is i had a professor who said that it is the absolute worst thing to ever happen to therapy and he can't imagine having a proper client therapist relationship when someone can be at home in their pajamas Mm. so maybe what would you say to that and like what do you think about telemental health um i think part of me agrees with that and then (laughs) part of me and my experience of actually doing it is very different I think that just like in-person therapy, not everybody's ready for it. You know, I think I get a lot of clients who, um, you know, sort of have this expectation. I think where maybe he's coming from or they're coming from is that, um, you know, when you work with organizations, you know, like the ones that I work with, uh, like BetterHelp, who's owned by Teladoc, um, I, I struggle with the value of therapy in that, you know, they give a week away for free and then the person can't afford it after that. Um, and so you're sort of starting these relationships throughout the week yeah. and, um, and they want to make sure they get their session in before they're done and, you're sort of like we're both sort of wasting each other's time because there's this is not going anywhere yeah um and i think it's just again like any other really therapeutic relationship where you know depending on where they are in the stages of change they may be ready for that investment they may not be ready for that investment um where i have some really successful relationships through telemental health um i think that the way that my views have changed is that I think that telemental health helps to meet people where they're at. Mm. If I have clients in rural Michigan who can't access a good therapist in their area, or if they're in an ultra conservative area where they can only find, you know, 
Christian therapists and they don't happen to be those things and they maybe they don't feel comfortable, they can access somebody who fits their needs through telemental health. Right. And so then ethically I ask, you know, myself is like, is it more important to have that in-person relationship with that, per, you know, therapeutically, or is it more important that we have access to care? Yeah. Right. Gotta and start somewhere, but exactly. And I don't think that it's a good fit for every single therapeutic relationship. There are times like on Better Health where you can, you know, decline to work with somebody because you may not deem them appropriate for that platform. So if I have somebody who's actively suicidal. Right? They're not yeah. probably that appropriate for that platform. And it is something that they ask, but I do think that people, when they're filling out questionnaires, they're maybe not as honest as they are once they <laughs> enter into a therapeutic yeah, relationship. Sure. Um, or if somebody, you know, has just a lot of complex issues going on, you know, one or even two, you know, 30-minute conversations, it's probably pretty difficult to dive into that. And I would say it just depends on... How are you using the form too? Yeah. You and know? I wonder how having like a physical space, you know, having those four walls around you and saying this is a safe place mm-hmm. versus, okay, you're getting a text while you're on the call with yeah. your therapist. You're mm-hmm. like, oh, I do wonder how that um, would affect your progress. Yeah. I think you could be distracted. Yeah. But then I would also say, is somebody distracted while they're in they're in-person therapy session, right? And there's all these different ways that we could be distracted in therapy and not present. And so um, if that person's at home in their pajamas and that's the way that they feel like they can open up and be present in their session, then great. If not, then maybe it's just not appropriate and they would probably be doing something similar to that behavior in an in-person session anyway. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Right? Yeah. Like, if they're not engaged, they're probably not going to be engaged no matter what sort of platform you're at. Right. If you're not taking it seriously here, why would you... Yeah. Yeah. Kind of people are who they are and their health is where where it's at, regardless of whether they're at home or in an office. Yeah. So, how do you see that the general state of therapy and mental health has changed over the last few decades? A lot. Um, I mean, even just the question of telemental health. I mean, if you would have asked me if I would have done that, you know... Even a few years ago, I would have been like, absolutely not. Um, there's just all these ethical issues and all these things. And I just think you just never know how you're going to react unless you're in the situation. There's absolutely no way to know that. And, um, and so I think the way that it's changed in the past decades, I mean, I think, you know, the DSM has changed a few times, <laughs> um, you know, being, being able to, you know, recognize that. Uh, you know, gender dysphoria, right, has nothing to do with the person's, you know, well, not nothing to do, but, you know, it's focused more on their environment and how people are reacting to them rather than pathologizing their gender, um, their gender exploration, their their discovery of themselves. And so um, I think that's been a huge change. Um, But, I mean, even the LGBTQ community... I mean, I think it was so exactly the year, but it was in the seventies where it was still in the DSM. Yeah. So, I mean, it hasn't been that long, and I think that that's understandable why there's been this sort of like 
it's been the mental health field trying to build trust, I think, with the community of, for the past few decades. Um, so I think how it's changed is it's been a lot more focused on sort of the recovery model, which is client-driven, right? So you should be able to, um, you should be able to decide what your treatment like looks like and not, you know, sort of this patriarchal, like, model of, the person sitting in the therapist seat is the know-all. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that building confidence in your clients, I mean, that's, I think that's our main job is how do they learn who they are and be confident on that. Um, and I think that that has definitely changed in the past few decades. I think in sort of the negative side is that I think that we rely on the evidence-based in science a little too much and I think that it kind of puts us in a box Mm. sometimes and you know as we spoke about before I think that there's a a balance between this sort of intuitive part of you and this sort of evidence-based scientific part and I think that you can use both to have you know individualized care but I think we live in a world that really is like anything that has any kind of research behind it is like, this is it. This is factual. And it's like, we know from research it changes all, I mean, it changes, right? Like that's the whole point is discovering the research and not using it like against people and gatekeeping and all those things. And, um, and I think that it can hurt in that, you know, if I say, well, if you did meditation and it's evidence, it's, there's evidence to say that it, it would help you. And my client saying it doesn't help me. I'm end of story right and I'm well and so then it's you know I am if I just go back on well you have to do this thing and because there's evidence and research that shows that it works I just created this narrative of there's obviously something wrong with you that it's not working Mm -hmm. right right so so I think that there's definitely the extremes of it's just like anything if you go to the extreme on any any kind of thing it's just not going to be beneficial yeah um so then on the other hand in what ways do you see therapy changing in the next 50 years if our uh, planet still exists yeah (laughs) then (laughs) um i mean i definitely see telemental health being more utilized um which is also sort of sad i think because I see this one side of like, I can get access to care and I don't have to drive downtown and, you know, make sure I have the hour to do it. And, you know, I can make sure I, you know, I can do it before I get to work or I can do it on my lunch hour or whatever. And I can chat with my therapist. But on the other hand, I think there's so much investment in that therapeutic relationship of, you know, having to make an appointment and go see your therapist every week or biweekly or whatever you're doing. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of sad about that, but I also think that, um, I guess I hope that more and more people are accessing therapy. Yeah. Um, and there's less stigma around it and people are understanding that therapy is really just for your own personal benefit and it's not, oh, I'm crazy. I go to therapy or I hear a lot. There's nothing wrong with me or there's nothing going on in my life. Why would I go to therapy? And honestly my first reaction is like you're doing it wrong like 
that's crisis response, right? Whereas therapy is, you know, how do I, how do I learn myself? How do I learn my environment? Um, and even prepare for certain things, um, or how do I learn about the experience that I've had and how does that inform how I live in my, my world? Um, and yes, crises come up and yes, you know, situations come up that you want to be able to talk about. But if you're only worried about things that are crises and, oh, there's something wrong in my life, so now I'm going to go get therapy, I think that you're sort of distracted by what's underneath and you're only focusing on, you know, like the symptoms or the the problems at hand that are created by what's underneath. And um, so I, I hope that as people talk more openly about going to therapy and how beneficial it is for them, then I see, you know, the next 50 years that pretty much everybody's going to have a therapist just like they have a doctor or they go to the dentist. It's equally as important as our physical health. And it's a lot of the times people don't understand how much our mental health affects our physical health. So, yeah, you know, that's my hope, I guess. All right. So then um, how has studying and practicing psychology affected how you view other people in the world in general? Hmm. That's a good question. I think sometimes it makes it more of a challenge to interact on sort of a normal everyday to day sort of existence where, um, I guess for, let's say you go to, uh, I don't know some sort of community event or party or whatever. Um, (laughs) And, you know, the expectation is that, you know, you sort of chit-chat and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chit-chatting is very difficult for me. I spend my, a lot of my life in these very intimate conversations with people and all the ins and outs of their thoughts and um, their most most intimate fears and then I have to go talk to somebody about the weather or or, you know the drama at work or whatever and I think that um I think that I've sort of become hyper vigilant around people's vulnerability and and picking up on you know when that's not happening it's it's like I feel like I don't have all the information, so then I yeah. don't know how to react. <laughs> and um, which is very different than sort of pre-grad school me of being very outgoing and sort of um, blunt. And, and I still think that I probably have some of that, but um, the analytical part of my brain is always on. Um, and so it's definitely a challenge of you know, practicing my mindfulness and being present and, and wanting to be there for those people. And I think it's been, it's, it's a continued, um, it's a continued effort to learn how to wear my own personal hat, right? Um, not being a therapist and being myself. And I think as you age and you, you know, change in your life of, you know, just taking new roles. I just became a mom last year and it's 
you are learning all those things, right? Or you turn 30 and it's like, oh, now I'm in my 30s and this is very different than my 20s. And, <laughs> um, and so I think that that's been a challenge in a very similar way that other people are going through. But I think because you have all of this knowledge about human behavior and the brain and all of that and... Um, I think you just expect something different almost in your day-to-day conversation. Um, And so you sort of have to be present on deciphering what your role is in each situation. Um, So I think I am similar in the way that I'm sort of comparing my behavior or comparing expectations as other people do. and does this sort of fit what I want these conversations to look like or, you know, and I think even the expectation of, I'm a clinician, I should be better at this, (laughs) which is a really fun, (laughs) which is a really fun internal um, conversation to have with yourself. But um, I think it's also been, for me, the ability to have deeper, more meaningful conversations and relationships with other people. Um, You definitely have your own parallel process, you know, during your experience as a clinician. So um, it's definitely, it's definitely informed who I am as a person as well, Mm -hmm. not just as a clinician. Yeah. So what advice would you give to undergraduates like ourselves who are just starting this journey? Do your research. Um, I did a lot of research before I decided to enter into grad school. And I think that, you know, see what type of jobs are out there. Uh, Interview people that are in those jobs. (laughs) And, you know, if you can't, right, and do exactly what you're doing. Um, You know, see if there is schooling that you need to do or are there different alternatives. you know, I've, I've talked to students at Eastern, you know, wanted to become a psychiatrist. And I said, that's great. There's also the ability to be a psychiatric nurse practitioner if you wanted to. You know, so yeah. it's just knowing that there are other options out there. And there's not, there's not just one way to get somewhere. But I also think there's just a lot of occupations out there that are sort of vacant because we don't know that they exist or how do we get there. And... Um, yeah, I just say do your homework, do your research on what you actually want to do and see if what you think you want to go into fits with that. Yeah. And I think it's, it's hard not, it's hard to make those decisions without that sort of information. I mean, I had no idea what it was like to be a therapist when I was in my undergrad, mm-hmm. right? I just had this fascination and I went with it and... You know, there was all these different directions that I could take. And, you know, I'm very happy I went in the direction that I did. Um, But, you know, it's like you can... I went for counseling psychology. You can go for social work. And social work has a lot of opportunity within it, um, especially in Michigan. So it also kind of depends on where you'd like to end up. You know, do you want to live in California? You may want to get a different, you know, graduate degree. Do you want to live... In New York, okay, well, they have different requirements, too. So I think doing the research and knowing what license requirements are and what schooling requirements, you know, you'll need 
um, can definitely inform what type of investment you want to make in yourself. Yeah. You know, but definitely talking to people that are in the field is, I think there's nothing better than that. Yeah, just get it from the front lines. Yeah, right? yeah. Because well, yeah. I mean, if you're gonna talk to people that like, I'm sure there's lots of people who you could talk to that hate their, <laughs> hate their jobs, right? Just like in any industry. Yeah. And then you can talk to people who you know love their jobs and you know and inform you in even what type of therapist you'd want to be, right? Like you can mm-hmm. make it work for yourself, but like, how do I do that? You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's excellent advice. All yeah, right. for sure. I think that's all the questions that we have. So cool. thank you so much for talking with us. We have gained so much from this. I'm sure we're oh, going to yeah. have a <laughs> very energetic um, conversation <laughs> in the car. <laughs> Definitely. No, it was awesome. Thank you, guys. It was yep. really fun to have you guys out here. A huge thank you to Miss Andrea Broadwater for speaking with us today, taking time out of your day. Thank you so much for all of your insight into what you do and getting us really fired up about it as well. Yeah, we really appreciated being able to talk with you, get two full episodes worth of insight and content. That was wonderful. Yeah. Um, Now, to all of you listeners, if you're listening, check out the show notes for our email address, Facebook link, Twitter handle, and please give us a rating or review on iTunes. Yeah, if you have some pals who are in a podcast phase right now, tell them to check us out. You got a long commute, you and your friends. Um definitely spread the word um and if you have a psychologist in your life that you think we would benefit from talking to or you guys would benefit hearing from uh please send us an email facebook message anything like that we would love to talk to them yep or even if you just want to chat give us a message <laughs> yeah we're pretty friendly yeah most we can get kind of clicky yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah we don't fight yeah um okay thank you for listening And we will see you next time on Preoccupied. We got a little off topic. <laughs> oh, just, <laughs> just a bit.